Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. In today's conversation, hitting intern Nick Askew and I sit down with Rachel Folden. Rachel is the owner and founder of Folden Fast Pitch, as well as a hitting coach in the Chicago Cubs organization. Since the recording of this episode, Nick has also moved on to become the Director of Player Development and Operations at Georgia Tech. If you like this episode and would like instant access to all of the roundtable discussions, you can join LPD Plus. It's an online coaching community filled with these discussions as well as drill videos, uh, sample programming, anything for the curious-minded coach that's looking for better ways to train hitters, pitchers, baseball, and softball. Thanks again for tuning in. And without further delay, let's get on with the show. You, so I told Rachel before you got in here, we talked on the, um, she was on the, the uh, round table a couple weeks ago. And then after that, you said that you wanted to ask her a few more questions. And we've been talking about Diamond Connects and Blast, but that's fine. And so actually, Rachel, I wanted to, I wanted to start this whole thing with my son is downstairs watching um, Infinity War. Okay. And I wanted to know what is your favorite Marvel movie? Okay, so I've been sleeping on the Marvel movies for a little bit. I haven't okay. watched all of them, but the best one I've seen so far is Black Panther. Okay, all right. No doubt. Black Panther's like the best one. It's got the best soundtrack and everything. My, so my, I can probably give you my top five really quickly. Endgame is like the most incredible movie ever. Like, okay. It was unbelievable. And then I'm a huge Iron Man fan. So yeah, Iron, Iron Man was good Iron too. Man 1 is awesome. Loved. I love the Captain America movies. I like the first one a lot. Um, I have not seen Captain America. Wonder Woman was really good too, though. Um, Wonder Woman was good. Captain Marvel's awesome too. Um, and then actually my daughter, I think two Halloweens ago dressed up as Captain Marvel. So That's she's all awesome. into it. Um, then Civil War was awesome. Captain America and Iron Man. And then I don't know what would be five, but Nick, what do you, what do you, I mean, you, I don't even know if you watch Marvel movies, dude. Like we've, we've kind of exposed you for like just this baseball nut really. Yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> not, not having TV or cable um, or really like any subscription online, like YouTube TV for four years has really kind of put me behind with a lot of TV shows and movies. Yeah, but your um, knowledge of skill acquisition is like, unmatched yeah you read a lot yeah i yeah, do i do read yeah, yeah. people I mean, ask you, me well what do you do you read the dynamics of skill acquisition rachel like i, I have not no i have not I, it's the, on my reading list the second volume just came out and it's on e-text okay. 75 bucks on e-text I, I sent nick that the other day i was like we got to get this yeah get rolling so you don't sure. have to have the book you just buy it right then and there you go yeah cool i'm in so outside of marvel movies rachel um I didn't even know where you want to start. Why don't you, why don't you tell, why don't you talk a little bit about like where kind of how you came about where you got today? Like, obviously you came from a softball background into coaching and then from there go. So I followed the, uh, the unconventional path to being a, high level coach in that I was, a, I was a good softball player. Most, most people that are high level coaches were like crappy players, right? Isn't that yeah. like the, the requirement? Um, yeah. I had a lot of success playing. I just, I always wanted to know why. 
And, and I was always fascinated with wanting to know why I remember in college, anytime we had, you know, like number, it was always statistics. Like I was obsessed with them. I, I think the only time I ever got in trouble in college was because I was looking up my statistics in one of my computer classes. My coach loves to tell that story. <laughs> so I got in trouble for it. Um, but it's true. Like I've always just been obsessed with like, like how to get better. And, and I think, you know, I went through the whole early on in my coaching career of, you know, I'm, I, I, I know everything because I was good, you know, so just do yeah. it exactly the way I did it. Right. And I did that. I did that for years and I was producing really, really good cage hitters and, and really, really, really crappy game hitters. And so, you know, because like when I played, I didn't need to hit off of the machine to be successful. I just, I was, I was naturally good at the sport. Right. So I'm like, right. well, I hated pitching machines. I hated difficulty in practice. I just wanted to feel good. Cause in my head, I, I had already like all that, that mental competitiveness, like I had, right. But I had to train that into other players. Yeah. And so like I had to figure out a way to do that. And so, you know, like I, I love to tell you this because you, I've, you and I have had this conversation before Chad, like you kind of kicked me down this, this rabbit hole that we're all going down right now with all yep. these coaches. And I just saw things and I'm like, man, I don't even do anything that's like remotely close to that. Like I just sit there and I'm like, just, you know, barber on a bucket just slinging balls and these kids are hitting bombs and they go home they feel great and then you know they don't get any better in a game and so I was really just a, a glorified motivational speaker at that point you know they I like I, I taught them life lessons but I didn't make them better yeah. softball players you know yeah. and so there was value to it but not as much as I wanted and so I think that I just I was like you know what I, I got to do a better job and so I just you know, I read a lot. I studied a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think our first, our early interactions between you and I were, you were still going to try to play a little bit. Yeah. Well, right? so that's, yeah. So I reached out to you. So I went to like Team USA, like advertised this open tryout. And that's the only softball mountain I never got up to, to like, I never got to reach. And so I was like, well, Team USA in the past is it, baseball and softball. Both are kind of like, always been ridiculed for not choosing the best players. And so I was like, well, if it's truly an open tryout and I really like go there and I train for it, then like, I actually have a shot at this. Cause I'm still, I'm, I'm in much better shape than when I played, I played it like 40 pounds heavier. So I got in shape. So that's when I reached out to you and I said, Hey, take a look at my swing. Here's my diamond kinetics numbers. Cause I was using right. the yep. time and I was like, you know, what do you see? And you kind of got back to me and we just kind of built a friendship and, and just asking you a lot of questions about what you do with your facility and how you set it up. And, you know, just, it just completely blew my mind, the things that I was finding and baseball has always been ahead of softball. And so I just started going down baseball rabbit hole after baseball rabbit hole. And here we are. I'm here you are. Yeah. In a, in, a minor, in a major league organization. Yeah. I mean, that that's kind of the story that I tell between you and I is, I mean, I probably did nothing more than just kind of ask her and address her with a different question. And I yeah. think that's probably what I'm good at is like, don't come into a conversation with me if you're not going to like accept this view of it, because I'm probably going to go about it in a way that you maybe not have heard before. And that was, that was good. You know, a good start for you because you're a curious person. And you, you like the curiosity of the thing. And it's like, huh, well, that's weird. Yeah. I wonder why they do that. And, you know, there you went. Off you went. And, you know, it, my my interaction with you was like nothing more than just like 
kicking your curiosity in a direction. Totally. And I think like the part of coaching that I feel like I've always been good at is I've always been good at connecting with my players and like showing them that I care and all the intangible stuff. I've always been really, really good at that. I wanted to get good at the tangible stuff. Right. I think that that's sure. where, you know, this, this whole, uh, that's where you helped me a lot. That's where, you know, stones helped me a lot. That's sure. where a lot of these people have helped me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Nick, I coached Nick in, in high school and he was my catcher. And so he was always a guy, Nick, you can probably tell your story a little better than I can, especially after you graduated high school, but you were always a guy who just really like, you didn't like tip, you didn't like test the water in the game. It was like, I'm swimming in the deep end and like, I'm going to, I'm going to go at this thing. Like that's why I say you've not watched TV for like four years and you've probably like spent every moment of it in figuring it out for lack of a better term. Yeah. I, and I at times wonder if I've uh, done a good job in that amount of time that I've been given. Um, Yeah. So Nick is, Nick's been in the building for probably about a month now. Who knows how long else he's going to be here, but like He's he's been in the building as long as I've been in baseball. Sweet. Yeah, Nick. <laughs> yeah. So, like, and he's—I guess he's now interacted in my world for like a month, like most days. And yeah, Nick can probably speak to this. It's like the—I told Rachel, I was like, I function pretty good in chaos and randomness. I think it maybe blows Nick's mind at times because, like, I don't have to have a really plan for anything. I just kind of go in it and like um, attack it from. Let's just ask questions and see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I do like how like spontaneous you can be about um, just making on the fly, real time corrections or adjustments. Did you see uh, my? Did you see my Twitter today, Rachel? We've no, been, I have the bent bat. Have you seen the bent bat? No. <laughs> <laughs> Is it like a poor man's insider bet? No, it's well, yeah, I guess you could probably s- somewhat say that. That's not the idea, but but I was in the I was in the building like messing around with spinners this weekend and and I thought, what if you built like I'm always trying to like think of ways that my kids like I can challenge my kids to find the barrel. And so I like mm-hmm. building weird stuff to challenge my kids to just swing fast and find the barrel. It's all I want you to do. It's like, I'm going to give you a bunch of different stuff, swing fast and find the barrel. So what I thought I would do is like build this, just build it out of PVC sticks and like build it where it had like an L curve in it. And, and like that way when they swung the, the part of the bat, they would hit the ball would be like underneath their hands. And so they had to figure out like, the adjustments they would have to make in order to hit the ball. And so I put it together today and we were hitting with it, Nick. You want to elaborate on that thing? (laughs) I don't know if I would say hitting. I certainly wasn't. I was whiffing. Mine was uh, terrible. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I told, I told like Nick and Evan, the the high school kid, this is kind of like watching a car wreck, but not, not, I can't like stop watching him swing and miss at this ball. (laughs) So it's like, it's literally like you move the barrel. So like when someone swings the bat, they don't know where the barrel is. Yeah. Yeah, What you have to do is you kind of have to hold it where, you know, in the position you're going to make impact and make sure that the part of the bat is below your hands and then just take it back and set it and then we'll flip balls at you. And so you've just moved the butt, you've moved the barrel down a whole ball's length 
and where it's at. And it is awesome. It is completely awesome. It's really funny because so I'm reading that uh, Performance Cortex book right now. And it's like, it's, it's kind of slow. It's kind of hard to get into because they use a lot of like language that like, I just, you know, I'm like a grunt. I don't really understand it a ton, but, um, the, there's a part in there where they said that there's this like BMX guy and somebody bought him a bike for his birthday, but they rigged the handlebars. So every time he tries to turn off the wheel, we talked about, have you never watched the backwards bicycle video on every day? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's kind of the same. It's kind this of the same the, concept. This yeah. is the smarter everyday backwards by the bat version of the backwards bicycle. It yeah. is awesome. Like, yeah. it's, I told Nick, I'm like, I don't know what the secret is. Like, I don't make any bones about that, but I think it looks a lot like this. Like, I think it looks a whole lot like what we're doing right that's now. A, that's a really good, you should build one that's higher too. So you, you should can go just with flip both. it over. Like you, so oh, okay. You All right. Flip it the stick over where the stick, the, the L part would be above your hands at impact and then take it back and swing it. And so now it's like over the ball. That's yeah. awesome. It's and you could even and awesome all in the same breath. Um, so I got a text on my phone. I'm getting an Amazon delivery in like two minutes, which I have to go get. So yeah. just when I, when that happens, I'm just going to hop out for like two minutes You're and then good. I'll come right back. You're good. That's, that's one of the advantages. Where, where do you live? I'm in Arizona. I'm in Tempe. What, what, in Tempe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I trained at, at what was what is now Exos, but it was Athletes Performance at the time, and it was in Tempe, and that place is awesome. That yeah, is place. that the one that's like connected Arizona State? It was at the time. I don't know yeah. if it still is. So one of my college teammates worked there. She probably worked there. What, what years were you there? I was there like oh three, oh four, oh five. No, she's not. She's she would have been after that. But yeah, yeah that's uh. She she actually went and worked there for a little bit as a performance coach. Man, it was awesome. Yeah, that place is sick. They gave us a uh, tour of it when we came down and played Arizona State. Yeah, and I was like, dude, this place is awesome. They're like, yeah, big leaguers awesome. train here all the time. I lived like in the hotel across the river from like Arizona State. It was awesome. Yeah, I, that's where I live. I live on the river across from Arizona State. Yep, sweet. Yeah, it was a great idea to be in this spot because I'm right in walking distance from yeah, all the restaurants walk everywhere. and bars. I used to yeah. walk down there all the time, like yeah. on the weekend when I didn't have anything to do. Yeah. And yeah. then the world shut down, so it didn't matter. Yeah, there's nothing to do anyway. <laughs> there's nothing to do. Anyway, so. so yeah. Nick, what, did you, what did you want to get into with Rachel at all? Um, I know you said you, you had some questions or did you want me to just keep talking about randomizing training or – it's straight I mean, approach or we can definitely keep it as spontaneous as you want. But I, I did, you know, I think I like to ask just about everyone that I kind of talk to, especially those in professional baseball, because they definitely have an advanced skill set. Otherwise they wouldn't be there. Like, like just referring to like drill design, like we were just talking about like manipulating constraints in a way that might potentially uh, affect contact efficiency or you just, just kind of like, my question would just be like, how do you like walk through um, in your own mind or on paper um, drill design? Like, how do you, what's your process like for like designing those? I'm going to get back to you in two minutes. Got it. <laughs> I'll be right back. Got it. Give me a sec. Um, I, yeah. I, I love, I don't know if she did this, but have you ever, have you ever been anywhere where like you can order Amazon and have it delivered in like two hours? No. It's freaking awesome. Like we, when we go to Disney, when we take the kids, we try to take the kids to Disney at the end of every year. And so we, we just go down there and like, 
like monsters in the lobby because I try to drink I drink loads of caffeine and monsters in the lobby are like six dollars a can. Yeah. It's ridiculous. But if, if you go down there, that you can get Amazon delivered in in like two hours. So you can order monsters from Amazon, have them delivered to the hotel in like two hours and pick them up. It's incredible. Like I don't. You and I currently, you're you you you've been out more places than me in the last bit but like currently you and i both live in the middle of nowhere so so that phenomenon is like unbelievable i don't know if she did that or not but the amazon it's called it's called prime now where you can order amazon and have it delivered in like two hours is that like i would never go anywhere yeah i mean like social distancing is no problem for me in most cases because i never go anywhere anyway Uh uh-huh yeah. Work and home, like the road between the cage and here. That's about uh-huh. it. Yeah, same. same. <laughs> Are there any limitations on that? Can you like legitimately like order whatever you want on Amazon and? Have well, it? not whatever you want, but like in places like that, you can order groceries. They, have, I mean, you can order basically anything. I mean, you can't order. I don't think you can order like a TV and get it done in like two hours, but. Um, but anything like that, like grocery, I mean, like, for example, last time, two times ago, I don't know, we went down there and I think both my son and daughter had like, like really bad congestion because that's what kids do. They're just filled with snot like all the time, especially in the fall. And so we had to get them some, some like, we had to get them some allergy medicine and we didn't have so I was like let's try this prime now like you know we're like $30 worth of stuff we'll throw some monsters in there for sure because I got to have those but you know we got the kids mucinex and like two hours later he's at the front desk and I mean if you live there obviously you just have it delivered to your house in two hours mm-hmm. it was awesome that's awesome, awesome. like I didn't know live that. A real, to live in a real place yeah <laughs> like I would I would have no money because I would do hey Rachel She's not back. She's got to put her headphones back in. Are you back? I'm back. So did you have? So we were talking about Prime Now. Did you have? Did you do Prime Now? No, this was a. Uh, I just ordered some books. They're oh. just really, really strict about not letting packages get left out. So Are you have you ever done Prime Now? Have you ever been anywhere where Prime Now is a thing? No. Where you can order Amazon it- and it delivers in like two hours. Oh, I'm I I'm sure it would do that here for sure. Yeah, it's incredible. Like I was telling Nick, Prime Now we did Prime we do Prime Now. We try to take the kids to Disney at the end of every year, and so we go down there and like I got to drink Monsters, and so Monsters in the lobby at Disney are like seven dollars. Yeah. So if you Prime Now them, you can just get a whole twelve pack for Amazon price. Mm-hmm. Two hours later, you you got it. So we'll throw in like a lot of different stuff that we'll need while we're there, and we just don't buy it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a good. Yeah, they they would they would definitely have that here in Phoenix Tempe area. They got everything here for sure. It's incredible. Like yeah, Chipotle delivery and all other. I would I would never go anywhere. That's like an introvert's dream. Is like I know. like just never have to go anywhere. Like and I, me, all I want to do is just go out and socialize because I'm the I'm the opposite of you. So this yeah, is killing. No, this not. shutdown like, is killing me. Sound good to me at all? Like. And, and, and it really depends on the circle, really, if we're being honest. Like, I yeah. can talk to baseball people very socially. My problem is, like, I don't interact with that many baseball people from time to time. Like, my yeah. wife's friends, they don't 
coach baseball. And mm-hmm. like when I go to social events with her, cause that's what she wants to do. It's like, what am I going to talk to people about? <laughs> like what, what you guys, you guys know anything about the CLA or like skill acquisition or anything? <laughs> no. Cool. Well, I'll be over here. Like, I don't know. Right. The hors d'oeuvres or whatever. All right, Nick, I don't want to keep you waiting too long. So you asked about like differentiation of training. Is that what you were asking me about? Yeah, just really just how you approach drill design, like kind of like in your own mind or on paper, like what steps you take to really design your own drills. So like when I first started, I I did a lot of um, like the, okay, so here's the problem. I'm going to correct the problem with the drill. So like, for example, if I had someone – um, you know, not like their hands were dropping too early and they weren't getting a good scap load, then I would pull their hands back. Right. So I would, I would assist them. And then I was like, okay, so then you just to get them to feel it. Well, that didn't work. So then I thought, okay, you know, you see a lot of people talk about, uh, and I, there's a name for it. It's like RNT reactive neuro something. And the way that you are supposed to train to get rid of flaws is to feed the flaw. And so I started feeding the flaws a lot more now. So instead of pulling their hands back to where they should be, I pull them forward and down where they shouldn't be and mm-hmm. force them to make up their own movement solutions. And that's just one example. Um, and, you know, I, I, I come up with a lot of stuff like kind of honestly, like on the spot in a lot of in a lot of ways. Like you'll see kids that you're like, OK, we're on this track, this track, this track. And then all of a sudden you're like wait a second, like we got to intervene and do something right now. And so that does happen quite a bit. Um, but like lately it's been, I, I have, I've paid more attention to setups and stances more than I ever have in my entire life. Um, I've always been the coach. It's like, I don't care how you stand. I don't care where you, where you start. Um, but now watching people move to their, their loaded like launch position, um, is in a lot of ways, extremely inefficient. And so now it's been, playing with different stances and playing with different dynamics, um, you know, starting them off with their feet together, starting them off super wide and letting them kind of figure out their movement solutions in the middle. Um, I, I was really, really inspired by, I think this is, they probably talk about this in the dynamic of skill acquisition book where they were talking about people shooting like balls in these buckets and they're shot in a four foot bucket and they had one group train and just shooting the four foot bucket 20 minutes a day. And then the other group for 20 minutes shot in a five foot bucket and a three foot bucket, but they never shot in a four foot bucket. Mm -hmm. And then they retested them. And the, you know, it's like, so I kind of try to like overdo it and then underdo it and then kind of let their, their movement solutions, you know, land somewhere in the middle. That like, Um, that like uh, repetition without repetition approach. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good way to put it. Um, Because it's like getting the same swing off. I like, I, you guys could answer this too. Do you think you've ever seen somebody take the same two exact swings ever? No. no I don't that's either. That's not a real thing. That's not a real thing, right? If if it was possible to do that, then people who shoot darts would hit the bullseye every time, right? If that it, that's a simple movement to execute, but they still yeah, the target never moves. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. So yeah, it's, and, and that's it's good. That's a good point. And it's a close skill. It's a self-paced skill. Like there's no really any external factors that could contribute to the motor action. I mean, maybe like pressure, but at that point, that's still more psychological. That's self-paced. So, yeah, I mean, even if you were to 
like somehow like quantify the the energy transfer from the elbow to the hand, whatever, to the dart, like if they could repeat that energy transfer and that that motor action then like why shouldn't they be able to why would it why would there not be way more people that are like unbeatable at darts yeah if motor action was actually repeatable right now you throw in that you throw in the the part of like the balls moving and like it's breaking vertically and horizontally and speeds changing and Mm -hmm. it's impossible like it's impossible I think I talked about this a little bit, uh, maybe two weeks ago on, on the Sunday Zoom call, but I listened to a podcast in the fall from Rob Gray. I think you, you two probably know Rob Gray and the Perception Action podcast, but he was talking about that thing like um, uh, repeating technique and the podcast was called like how consistently we do we need to move to be consistently successful. So like, and that's a question I think we're all asking is like, Okay, so we get the idea that um, motor behavior or like technique isn't like what we're shooting for in terms of repeatability from rep to rep. But like, like, what are the areas that we need to like? What's like, what actions should we search to uh, repeat? Or like, having a bandwidth uh, of of technique, so to speak, um, where there's a where it, like this this. Uh, these positions that they can move in are a lot wider than, than something you would see years ago, which was more narrow, um, which was moving one way. Like how, how do we kind of like navigate that is something that I've always um, really questioned is like, how consistently do we need to move to be consistently successful? I think, I mean, to me, the part of your swing that can be repeatable is your load. To me, you can repeat your load. Yeah. I mean, your rhythm and, and like your flow and, you can repeat that. It may not that. be exactly the same, but you, you are trying to just flow in rhythm the same. Because like, to me, once you start, once you've decided you're going to swing and, and you, you've hit that go, to me, that's mobility and strength is going to determine how quickly and how what the position your barrel is going to be. Yeah, and then variability of training at that point. Like Correct. how much variability have you introduced to the mover? Like Correct. the crooked bat or the weighted bats or the fastball machine or – I love the crooked bat idea. I'm going to do it. Unbelievable. It really is. I love it. I'm going to do it. I just think that's the coolest thing. Um, But yeah, like to me, to me, like, you know, like you can control for the most part, like how long your foot's in the air or you can control like getting to close to a 50, 50 landing position almost every single time. Right. Unless you get blown up by speed or it's a change up and you're way out in front or something like that. But to me, like that's the part of your swing that like, Nobody really wants to work on because everybody wants to work on impacting the ball, right? But like how efficiently you get to that weighted front foot or that that go position mm-hmm. um, to me is the part that you can like, that's the part that like what you're talking about, that consistency and that repeatability. Mm-hmm. That's the part that we have to be able to control better than all of the other factors of the swing. Yeah. And this kind of gets into what I wanted to ask you as well is, Something that I find, you know, the more I get into, you know, the research and more conversations that I have is like giving feedback is really not easy and correcting error or correcting technique is is not an easy um, feature for a coach. So like going back to what we were talking about there with uh, 
loading the trail leg. Like we were, we're training a player right now and Chad could definitely speak to this. This player is having he'll disconnection from the ground when he's moving forward and he'll land with more flexion in his front knee compared to some. And he really didn't understand why this was happening in more of a variable setting when I was throwing overhand to him. And like, he was so concerned about like his trail leg in a more externally driven task. And, but when he, once he started to like connect to me, like he took his attention off of his really like loading in the trail leg and holding that pressure in the back leg. Like he, he was able to like, um, he, he had variability in movement every single time. Like it wasn't like this ideal energy transfer every single time, but his batted ball results were more consistent compared to him. Like actually thinking about what his body was doing in the, in those moments. So it's like kind of hard to like give feedback in those settings and, and kind of make those corrections um, in those settings when you're trying to attack that area. I would, I would go, can I, can I go back a minute? Yeah. yeah. Like Nick and I, Nick and I have talked about this and this is something Rachel that bothers me to no end. It's like, there are times where I think players should stand differently. I think they should have different handsets. I think they should just try different things. You know, they shouldn't be so, so bound up by, like, I have to hit like this. And so how do you afford them opportunities to, to, to stand differently without telling them how to stand, per se? And, and you know, we do do feet-together drills, and we do do step-back loading drills, and we do do angle drills. I mean, we do it in a, just a bucket load of drills. But, like, we've gotten into high-hand set drills. We've gotten into low-hand set drills. And I don't know if we talked about this the night that you were on there or what, but we talked about as far as like defining a good hitter and what a good hitter is. Obviously the speed component, the variability component, the acceleration component, like all those things are like present in all those people. But like if you took a hitter, if you took any hitter um, and you, and you told them, okay, this is what I want you to do. And like, I want you to take one swing where you're going to do, I'm right-handed. So, like, you're going to do right-handed Cody Bellinger, mm -hmm. and then you're going to go the next, the very next swing, you're going to go Sammy Sosa, and then the next swing, you're going to go Rod Carew or somebody that's, you know, or then the next swing, you're going to go Babe Ruth. And, and you could take them through this assortment of players, like duplicating their stances and, and moving. And if they barrel up the ball, if they can barrel up the ball from all those spots, is there any chance they're bad? <laughs> like, can they be bad there's, if they can do there's that? Always, there's always a chance that you could be bad. Cause well, everybody – I mean, that, I try that, to – That damn pitcher is I mean, you got to understand, like, everybody that hits sucks at it. Like, yeah. everybody sucks at it. And so, you're just trying to suck less. I guess the better question is, like, do they suck less than everybody else if they can do all of those things, like, on an instant? Yeah. They, I mean, you'd have to say, yeah, right? Like, because how how good do you have to be if all your conditions have to be perfect in order to put a barrel on a ball, right? The, the good hitters can do it when the conditions aren't perfect. Yeah, from anything. Like, I tell kids all the time, it's like, you know, I know you probably don't like your bat, but, like, if you're really good, 
I know you're probably going to get some more performance off the barrel, but if you're really good, I mean, I can go outside and like rip a limb off of a tree, hand it to you, and you're going to figure out how to get the ball off of it. Right. Like, that's what good ears do. Yeah. And I, it, it's true. Like, just being able to get your barrel where it needs to be on time, that is technically what we're all after, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. That, that's, but it's so freaking hard. Yeah. Hitting is so hard. And it's like, and I like that. I like the, the very, I wrote it down, like varying up your stances. Like, I think giving players just the freedom to do it. Like, you know, when they come train with us, there's like a different level of expectation and not in the way of like, we expect you to do this. this no, month, it's like, totally the way we are it, too. Like, right. It's like in the expectation is like, listen, like you and I are on this journey together and we're going to figure this out together. Right. We're not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you how to swing. I'm going to give you all of the tools necessary for you to build your own swing. Right. That's, that's yeah. what we're after. But it's like giving them freedom to say, Hey, listen, like, and I, I, I tell players this when I played, um, I kind of had the Albert Pujols evolution where I would start. I, when I hit in college, I had a wide stance, lift my heel, minor toe tap and go right. The older I got, the more narrow my stance got and that forward move got a little bit bigger, right? I like talked bigger. about this the other day. How would you hit? If you could go back right now, how would you hit? I would start uh, not quite as tall as Cody Bellinger, but I would have a more aggressive forward move because I, 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 I don't, like I played old lady softball. And so like, you know, like I could, you know, start more narrow. I just feel more comfortable that way now. Yeah. Nick said but, the same thing. I said the same thing. I would go, Super narrow stance and low handset. That way, I could do a lot of different things. So you'd go full day because I am because I I was the one that was told like you know straight to the ball, you know backspin the ball, and so my swing today is still pushy, like mm-hmm. really pushy. If you have a lower handset, you can get away with a lot and still just turn to the plane of it. And so push your players like me. Just go with a low handset. That way you can get to the plane to pitch and still be pushier. That's yeah. the way I would hit. Nick said the same thing. I don't know how – what handset would you go with, Nick? You said narrow stance. Yeah, so, like, my junior year, like, in high school, like, I would, like – the bat – this would be, you know, parallel or perpendicular to my spine, parallel yeah. to the ground. Like, mine was, like, a little bit back. So, I would stand upright like Bellinger, and my bat would be back, kind of like my junior year. And that would tip the bat, like – straight up again that would be um, parallel to my spine or perpendicular to the ground Mm -hmm. and I would just I would get to the point where I don't feel the bat in my hands whatsoever just point it directly up I feel no weight in the bat and I would just make my forward move um, spread the floor and just try to just turn I Um, would still have flat bat here I that's just I'm a tight mover my my if I if you give me too much to do here my hands get pushy and out in front of me. Yeah. So I have to like keep them back here. You know yeah. what I mean? Like very simple. Like I, I think, you know, I, I was the, uh, the coach's dream cause I'm a tight mover and every coach wants their, sw- their kids swing to be simple and short. Yeah. You know? No, I was a tight mover too. I'm curious though. Like why do you equate? I mean, you kind of answered it, but like, why do you equate like presetting back to spine angle at 90 degrees as a tight mover solution? Um, because I, okay. So here's kind of how I think about it. Tight movers turn faster than loose movers, right? The, yeah. Their rubber band is shorter. Yeah. So to me, 
if you like a like a loose mover has to have that extra movement yep. to take to take the slack out of their swing. A tight mover though, if you give me that extra movement, I'm going to turn so fast. I'm going to get so much length back here and I'm not going to be able to connect that I'm just going to probably end up pulling off the ball. That would be my that's my guess. And so that's why you see tight movers get pushier and yeah. and you hear them all talk, right? Like straight down to the ball. You hear Bregman yeah. talk, you hear Trout talk, you hear Pujols talk. That was me. Yeah. Right? They me. talk this way, but they turn so damn fast that yeah. by the time this happens, the barrel's, all, the barrel's already laid back and, yeah. and it, it, their body has gotten in front of their hand. So if you, that's already a natural movement that's going to happen anyway. So if you go with, a, you take a tight mover and you give them like a hand pump or something like that, to me, all that does is disconnect them and it takes away exactly what they're going to be good at. So do you think do you think you could compound that with my explanation of a lower handset and a vertical bat? That way, as they turn, they're kind of climbing too at the same time. Yeah. yeah, they have to. I mean, you could. You have but to. If you, you have to climb. If but I think I, I think you still have to take slack out of the rear arm anyway. Yeah. So if you watch, like now, if you have bad shoulder flexion, like if you can't physically like you tell me all the time you tell everybody you're a piss poor mover right i am like like nick you nick, don't like like anytime they need a bad example for a movement assessment like get chad in here and let him do it like i'll <laughs> i'll fail all your movement assessments right you should see my uh my um internal rotation test like my hands i like they they can't get closer than like no heck no i got no shot in any of that none so if you think about it so when i i never was that that thrower that had like a freaking cannon i get rid of the ball quick but i never had a cannon because i have no i have poor internal rotation of my arm which means if i have poor internal like and i don't really have great external either but so my lead arm when i hit i tend to disconnect early because I have poor internal rotation here. So my arm straightens out early because I can't physically hold this for a long period of time. So I'm really good at outside pitches. It fit right into my – that's all anybody threw me anyway because I was a left-handed hitter. Yeah. So, it, you know, it fit right into what I did well. Um, but, like, when you talk about um, – I don't remember where I was going with this movement stuff. Where to, oh, like if you, if you – yeah, if you're – if you have a poor – if you have poor flexion this way – right? Like usually either your lat is super tight and it's short or you just have poor flexion. Well, you have to hold external rotation to get that barrel to lay back. And so if you have poor shoulder flexion, yeah, you're going to naturally go lower and you're going to use your lat more with your hands lower than you would up here. So to me, that matters too, as to where your handset could be, but it, it doesn't necessarily matter where you start. Um, but it matters like when you're at launch, if you see like, like a Justin Turner, you know, like how low his hands are at launch position. I, I, I've, I've never met the guy. I've never worked with the guy. I know his wife's from Chesterton, Indiana, but I've never met them. But I would bet you his shoulder flexion is piss poor. And that's probably what, I mean, he's an infielder. He throws from a low arm slot, never has to, you know, get up yeah. here. And I think like, cause I don't, you look at his swing and and I know he's a Doug Latta guy, right? Yep. But like you look at his swing and Latta wants a lot of people to be down here, at least from how I understand it. Again, I've never met Doug Latta either, but you see a lot of that this this motion right here with their hands like in front of their shoulder, but they never get like a good scap yep. load. 
I think so, the whole thing is like he wants everything to stay like in front of you. Like I know, I know Monty. Had a guy, I know Monty had a guy, Bryce Teodosio, that trained it with Lada, and Monty and I talk a lot. And so he, Monty, said that like he wants no like like none of that, like no, right. no depth in their load. Like you just right. We had in front of them, and we had a um, KBO player with three of them in our camp, three or four of them in our uh, instructional camp. They came down here, for, they played for the Lote Giants. Yep. And so I worked with them and one of them was this big lefty, big dude, right? Big, huge guy, lefty. And he was a Doug Latta guy. And I was trying to tell him, I'm like, you know, we, like he was, they were always in my group whenever we did our instructional camp. Like when we were in, in cages, they always ended up in my cage. And so I'm trying to talk and it's obviously through a translation and I tried to tell the, the, the big guy, the big lefty, I'm like, hey, I'm like, try to pull like just a little bit closer and a little bit tighter. And then his uh, coach told me, like, you know, he spoke English. He goes, well, he hits with Lada and Lada wants him right here. And I was like, okay, like that, you know, like whatever. But the guy for his size, I mean, he was like Anthony Rizzo's size. He's a big dude. Okay. And, but like when we go outside and hit BP on the field, didn't have a ton of power. I was surprised that he didn't yeah. have a ton of power, but I also think like, so when you look at, you go to like a Turner, maybe Turner like has like the no mobility in his shoulders whatsoever to pull his elbows back like this. And so he might be complete. That rubber band might be completely tight right here where for yeah. other guys, it's not. Yeah. And that's where that matters. You know, like, could you imagine Javi Baez trying to swing from here? <laughs> exactly. Like it wouldn't work. No. Donaldson. Same way. Yeah. Don, like, could you imagine Donaldson like, hey, just keep your hands right here and go. Like, that dude would struggle to hit the ball like 280 feet. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know? The slack. Yeah. So, like, you know, when you talk about, like, how to find that move, I think that, like, to me, I think you find it as a kid and then it's just, like, it either gets coached out of you or – you know, maybe just nobody gave you the freedom to explore those. Yeah, it either gets coached out of you or someone uh, limits your intention of action at an early age. So they tell you, they give you the wrong intention. Right. So, you know, in the age of trainability, and we've talked about that because, you know, I've taken specific interest, especially in, in early, you know, motor skill development with my own kids. It's like, you got to get them to the point where, regardless and nick and i've talked about this especially my own kids it's like you got to get them to a point where my goal with them is like get them to a point where regardless of what anyone says to them their intention of action is so ingrained and their you know their move is so athletic it's not going to really matter what anybody says to them Mm -hmm. so that's my hope with that yeah so when you like because i know you coach at bowling green nick like when you work with your college players like how much how much do you have to like overcome this like their coach as they've grown up bias versus like what you're trying to do with them? Well, it's definitely a challenge. Um, I, uh, I mean, I, I, I think me and Chad actually talked about this. Um, you know, I have this, this kind of personal rule that I really don't make any swing corrections within the first 30 days, but cause I just really just want to kind of build a database um, of this player who, who they are as hitters, just get an overall understanding of their tendencies um, but yeah, I think, I think more than anything, it's, I mean, it's just like designing, designing drills that where you can like, um, promote specific actions 
Uh, I don't really try to get too explicit in my feedback with players. Um, or, and that, that's, that's what we're talking about. You're talking about like searching the, the task for your personal movement solution. So mm-hmm. like, that's where I try to avoid explicitly telling players how to move because I want to afford them or invite them to explore that task, whatever that task is, if their hand sets up or it's low, um, if their feet are together, if their feet are separated, if they want to toe tap, leg kick, whatever. Um, I really just, I think for me, it's just really about designing the right tasks and emphasizing questions to um, understanding, to understand for me to receive feedback about what they're feeling and thinking. And then from there, use that information to somehow direct them to an answer um, without explicitly telling them um, more so constraint manipulation. So that has been um, Rachel. Rachel's worked quite a bit with KBS. Nick is kind of getting his baptism by fire currently in (laughs) all of the, he's never had a hit tracks. He's spent very little time with a, but has done like unbelievable work developing a data-driven approach with no data, really. Like coming up with his own, it's, it's been incredible. But now, Nick, what are maybe something that, that you struggle with? Take a 40 motion kinematic sensors or bat sensors or batted ball data. What is something you struggle with now that, that, that maybe you didn't even question before? And I think most, I think I know what your answer is going to be, and, and it's going to come out of the the 4D K vest world. And Rachel can probably help you a little bit with that perspective. Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, where it starts for me in like a drill design, it it really just starts with like correlations or relationship between motor actions and batted ball results, right? I mean, like, and those batted ball results that you're looking for or should be accordance to run scored. So like if you were to work that back and work it back from run score to batted ball events, to bat ball collisions, to biomechanics and perception, like you were to kind of work it back to that process. Like um, I, I've really questioned batted ball events. I've really questioned bat ball collisions and I've tried to really question biomechanics but that's something that where I'm at right now in this setting is learning how to use 4D and understand what information it's providing me as a coach and how I can translate that information to a player clearly. Um, but I think, yeah, like Chad said, he's not, he's not wrong. It's the 4D. So uh, I think um, probably really just, I mean, understanding like in more in depth, the kinematic sequencing, like I, I, I understand, um, you know, like, why um to generate speed we got to get the sequencing correct but like when you look at the 4d and the data the graphs like understanding like the relationship between like this sequencing and transition um what but what's in what is that related to like you know his perception you know what i'm saying like how do you pair that data is kind of where i'm at because like i can i can pair uh, batted ball events and bad ball collisions. I understand the relationship between those, right? Like, but I, I don't understand quite yet fully um, the relationship between specific um, like biomechanics and like bad ball collisions. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, if you can figure out how to quantify decision-making to 
contact or decision making to first move, like you're, you're going to be a millionaire because we're all looking for that information. Didn't somebody swear that they had that for a while? Didn't, didn't, uh, uh, didn't Richard say he was coming up with something like that, right? Like the, the yeah, decision making to, to, to launch or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, I lost what he was talking about. Like, here's the best I can get of him. It's like, he's really not done anything, anything original, but for the record, I like some of his stuff. I think yeah. some of his stuff is really good. I think he was kind of a pioneer on yeah. teaching everybody how to load, load the rear hip and do yeah. all that. I think, like, I think he's kind of a pioneer, right? Talked about that. I think some of his swing stuff is really good. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So, but I, yeah, like to go back to your question, Nick, like, it's to me the most important thing you can look at when you're looking at those graphs is the timing of when those things peak in relation to the other parts. Mm-hmm. Like to We're me, that's the most today. important part. Yeah. Like when you and you can really see, like we talk about tight movers and loose movers. Like the looser the mover, the bigger the window is between peak and decel, mm-hmm. and then the tighter the mover, it happens in a much shorter window. So the more you can get those those sequences to happen, not quite on top of each other, but almost on top of each other, mm-hmm. to me, that's the sign of somebody who's moving very, very efficiently. To me, if you want, like, if you really, really want to, like, improve your players, if you can improve the deceleration rates of, their, of your pelvis and your torso, I'm just telling you right now, you see gains. Like, exit velocity gains, like, in the five-plus miles per hour if you can just get someone to decel properly. Because what will happen is, and a lot of it's just strength. Like I think 90% of swing flaws are just, there's, there's a lack of strength or a lack of mobility in something, right? Like that's 90% or of it. Or yeah, that, well, that's the strength component, right? Yeah. That's, that's, strong, that's stability. Being being mobile. Right. So you've got that and you've got like, you know, th- that's, that's 90% of it. And the other 10% is like actual, you can cue a mechanic into fixing something else. But like, if you have a player that's torso never stops turning, like they don't have that shoulder stall to kind of like pass the energy into the arms, mm-hmm. like they're going to have, if they don't have speed issues, they're going to have directional issues, which is going to impact the bat ball collision. Like we talked about, you're going to see that come out on a rap Soto spin report. And then you're going to see that in ball flight, right? You're going to have these kids that look like they hit really good in a, in a 60 foot cage, but the minute the ball goes past 60 feet, it just hooks or it dies or it it balloons up in the air. Right. So that's where these, these, the launch monitors become important. But like, if you can improve those, the window, the timing window in which those things happen. And, and one of the things that I'm starting to, and maybe you got, you can help me with this, Chad is come up with a way to quantify it. Um, Cause I do have some pretty cool stuff at my disposal being uh, you know, with the budget of a major league baseball team. Um, but yeah. maybe how to quantify, cause to me, you're using your stretch shorten cycle or your stretch reflex to your advantage can make your swing so much faster, which is why I feel like you're seeing everybody move to this Cody Bellinger type stance, that narrow stance that we all kind of agreed with. It's better because to me, you're loading later, you're loading on the way forward instead of prepping your load really early and trying to hold it. You're literally, it's like, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet, pull back. Mm-hmm. And that's what, to me, you have to do that with all the sequences or all the segments of your body in sequence. So your hip has to load first, your upper body has to load next. To me, figuring out the loading mechanism, and, and that's, the, that's the, the, 
the kind of tough part to quantify, right? Because 40 and uh, KVEST, you're really only seeing readouts during the turn. You're not really seeing readouts during the load. And so like, I would like to, and we do have things that can quantify it, but I want to know when it's happening. And I've been pouring over this stuff over the last few weeks and trying to figure out particularly when do players load their upper body? When does their rear elbow move? Like, I really want to know that. And I think it happens a lot later than we teach kids to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think like we were actually talking about what you were talking about just then in terms of like um, one specific way of improving one player's way to generate speed. It's like, I was talking to Chad, like um, when looking at this player's 4d data, the uh, segments are like one above the other. Like the, you know, we, after a month of training this guy, he's, his transition is now turned into um, pelvis, torso, lead arm, and and, and back. So he's improving in his in his uh, transition sequencing, but the D cell is still a little off. But um, anyway, like they're a little stacked. And now that we're talking about this like this, and we're putting together what we were talking about earlier with Evan, do you think that's because he lands with and we and I've, Nick can kind of run this conversation forward that we were having today? But do you think it's because he lands with a more flexed front leg? And like his timing of his leg block, which would desail his pelvis, is like really late. And so his turn gets forward, and he just never desails his pelvis to where his arms can catch the. Do you think that? What do you think about that? Uh, I mean, we were talking, Rachel. We were talking. The question that Nick said today is like, when? When do? When do you think the arms? Well, how did you frame it? I don't remember. Like yeah, when basically, do like, arms, when do you release the barrel? Like, yeah, when do you release the barrel? That was the question. And I said, well, I think the barrel release and the lead leg block kind of time up because the lead leg block is like stopping the pelvis. Like you are, that is the break, right? The yep. pelvis is dead stops. When the pelvis dead stops, the action up the chain is like really fast. It's not like, it's not like it's, it's milliseconds fast. Like, and I think a lot of it, if you watch hitters, like time when their lead leg blocks and their pelvis stops, everything else goes like almost instantly. It looks instantly. It's not, but it looks instantly. This one kid lands. It was Evan we were talking about earlier. Lands with a very flexed front leg. And so that makes a lot of sense now that we're talking about that. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I, I'll tell you, I think the barrel gets released when the torso decels. Yeah, and the torso desails because the pelvis stops. Well, true. I mean, technically, you could you could control one segment without the other. You can make up for a bad lower body. You could, a good yeah. Upper body. You, can. you can. Yeah, that, that's so we talked about this one day. I think that's where I think that's why players kick back. Like I think that's why players scissors and kick back because they're not as driven by their their pelvis and they're they're more driven by their torso and their arms, just like not upper body swinging, but like kind of upper body swinging. Cause if you look at hockey players and hockey mm-hmm. players have no interaction with the, with the ground at all, they have to swing with their upper body and they all like kick back because mm-hmm. they have to swing with their upper body more. They're just overcoming something. Right. Cause they don't, they, there's no stability connected to the ground. They, right, there is no right. connection. And I think to the ground. baseball players kick back. I think, I think they're, they're, they're making up for maybe lack of interaction in their lower body to transfer up their chain. Could be, but you also see, so now how do you explain most, at least 
to my, I have no data to support this. This is just what my eyes tell me. Most players kick back when the ball's away from them. Um, so that it is, it, they're forcing a D cell, but what are they forcing the D cell of? So, cause, well, cause yeah, it, like, mean, because you like, so technically like I've got to D cell my torso sooner yeah. on an outside pitch. Right. Because right. I've got to get the barrel going in that direction versus turning, 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 and then getting in this direction, right? That because the pitch is away from them, and Nick can probably jump in on this because this is like Nick's thing. Like the perception of their action is is away from them, and their and their arms start to get away from them because their arms are getting away from them. Their torso is decelling. It's kind of like the figure skater, right? The figure skater that's turning fast as their arms get away from them, they slow down, right? do you think do you think as hitters perceive the ball away from them and their arms start to get away from them and, and go after the ball, that causes the decel of, of the torso? I have no idea. What do you think, Nick? Really interesting. I don't know. I've never thought about that. But but it, I mean it does make sense. I just um yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like that that's the thing is like the, the the cause and effect of all this, I think, is still what we're searching after, right? I think we know what, what is supposed to happen, but, like, what's causing one? And and all we're doing is, as movers is we're just we're, – we're great compensators. That's what human beings are. We're great, we're great at making compensatory movements, right? I'm falling forward, so my foot steps forward to catch me. And then I'm falling forward, so my foot steps forward to catch me. Boom, now I can walk. I learn how to compensate for not falling by learning how to walk, right? So once my, my upper body does X, my lower body is going to do Y to compensate because our body just craves stability and balance. That's, that's what it does. It craves that, you know, like, so if our, if our, we do feel our hands getting away from us, our body's going to do something to balance us out. Mm-hmm. And, and I think for everybody, it's a little bit different, but I do find it interesting that, you know, typically, especially when you watch like Cabrera, like the, the big scissors, like Miguel Cabrera, Jose Altuve, um, even trout scissors quite a bit. Trout, they scissor, yeah. yeah, they scissor a lot more, it, at least what it looks like to me, on those outside pitches. And I think that's their body's natural way of stopping, which is why I think it's not super effective to train the scissor. I think that that's something that just kind of has to happen. Yeah, I do um, too. That's, I've kind of always felt that way. It's like I've had a few kids, like young players, come in with a scissor that no one taught them. But I thought it was like super interesting. Like I don't know how you do this, but it's like you definitely decel really, really good. You're talking about like picking up miles an hour. Like they decel unbelievable. Yeah, I'm about to put one of them on forty probably this week. I just got him like two weeks ago. And when I was in college, my head coach at Averett, he had this drill where you put a center block on your back foot, and so the the correct technique would be your back foot landing in front of the center block and mine would always land behind the center block. And like, we didn't call it scissor when I was a junior, like we didn't really know what it was, but mine always went behind me. And like, he'd always like, just try to correct me. I'll move your, make sure your foot is getting in front of the block, but I don't like, like I don't still, I mean, can't explain exactly why mine was behind. It, it certainly could have been a more, um, because I'm a little bit of a tight mover, um, and probably used a bit of my bit more of my torso than my pelvis at that point at that point in my career. I think it, I've, I've done it too. Like you see that, and you're like, 
that's not good. That's going away from where I want the ball, you know, the ball is. And that's just like human nature, right? The ball's over here and I got energy going the other direction. That's gotta be bad. Right. It's just like, you know, I don't know if you guys went through this, but I remember the first time I was watching video and I would watch it, you know, a hitter's pelvis turn. And then you'd have that pelvis kick back for a second. And I would tell him, I'm like, you got to finish your turn. You're not getting your hips through the ball. And now I look back on it and I'm like, dude, I just probably took like four miles an hour away from some kid's swing because they tried to like never let their pelvis stop moving. And you're like, cause you don't understand what it means to decelerate, to get energy yeah. up the chain, you know? Yeah. But it's like, I think about that all the time. And same thing with the shoulder stall. I always thought the shoulder stall was bad. Right. And this is where a lot of the, you know, the, the, the online hitting gurus that talk about, you know, you have to, to pivot and swivel the barrel. Yeah, you do. Like it, it does move around your hands. It does move around, you know, a fixed point. But at some point, your hands are going to travel this way. Like you can't just continue to swivel and expect to ever, ever hit a pitch away from you. Like at some point, you got to stop turning. And then right. it's got to, you know, the barrel's going to get released, like we were talking about. So, you know, we're just, you know, it's like we've, we've gone in the complete other direction is like, you know, we used to let all these things happen naturally and we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Now we know so much and now we're overtraining the wrong stuff. And it's funny because you see this, this trend in baseball and, and, and it's like we're going back into let's let the movements happen naturally. And we're just going to give you a training environment and say, hey, go nuts within these constraints and let you figure out your own movement solutions. But I do think we're moving back towards the whole like figure it out for yourself like you did when you were a kid kind of thing. I hope I, so. That's my I, favorite. So do I. I mean, I, I 100% hope so. And I think it's just, I mean, we could talk mechanics all day, but if you don't know how to compete and hit something that's I moving, like, that matter. I don't find it practical. Like, I, like, we could talk, like, I tell people that all the time. Like, we could talk about mechanics or whatever. I just don't find it that practical. Like, in application, what I can tell you about hitting mechanics or movement correction it's not going to matter that much because right. if you don't get the intention of action right and you don't get the training environment right and you don't design the, the, the framework correctly, you don't and you don't meld all those things together. What difference does it? What difference does it matter that, about what I know about mechanics? Or yeah, if you if you don't couple your mechanics to information, like what are you doing? Like it, you're not going to. What am I doing talking to you about this? Right. right. It's, it's important for us to know though, like these conversations are totally important for us to do, but then we have to take it and package it up into a task oriented environment. Like you were talking about Nick to let the hitters implicitly figure this stuff out instead of having to, you know, like rely on, Hey, I need your barrel to do this. It's fine to like have those checkpoints and like check on it and say, Hey, you know, that's what that's, that's the value of the data. But it's like, it's important for us to know this like this is this conversation everybody should be having about what high level swings are actually doing but then the real money that we make as coaches is okay well how do i get players to actually do that though like we can know all the information we want if we can't get players to do it it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. for sure i agree and so i think we're we're kind of figuring that out is like play is going to get people to figure that out a lot quicker than hey do this with your hands or do this with your front foot or do this, you know, with Q salad, you know, it's not, yeah. it's, it's not conducive to a good training environment. Mm-hmm. Plus it plus and you, you throw my own kids in here. And we've talked about this. It's like, 
now all of a sudden, if if you connect players to and my sister, I'm talking to my sister about this today, if you connect players to the wrong, the wrong information being being like perfect mechanics oriented, then they're just always going to map their problems to the wrong thing. It's like you're you didn't miss the ball because your mechanics are bad. You missed the ball because hitting's hard, mm-hmm. and you know hitting's hard because you know, X, Y, and Z. So in order to like train the right information, uh, you have to just, you have to just be careful of what you're, because if you give them too much, now they connect everything to that. And it's like, ah, crap. It's like, it's like my own kids. I just want them to have right now their best swing, their fastest swing. That's it. If you miss, it's not a bad swing. You just missed. And so this next pitch I'm going to throw at you, just try to connect your best swing to this ball. If you miss, great. If you hit it, great. Like the process is going to kind of be the same. And then the information that you connect players to, that's that's one thing, especially with Evan, Nick, that like it's really hard. It's really hard because what do you tell him and what do you not tell him? Like what do you tell him? You know, we're talking about getting into a better position where he's spreading the floor like getting into a better deadlifting position. Like he's super strong. He's 500 pounds, but like he just gets into a really bad position when he, when, when he's getting into his, his stride foot. And so like, what do we tell him and what do you not tell him? Because you, you're around him, you know, as much as I am like, man, he takes, cause he's been coached that way his whole life. Like he takes anything that you tell him and he plugs right into that and mm-hmm. cannot let go of it. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, man. Like, I need you to just let go of that's. And I was going to tell you that today. It's like, especially in designing the training environments, like getting him into a place where he can just work on these things, and then getting him to a place where he's just got to hit. Mm-hmm. You know, like, the, like I've told you, like splitting the floor up into like, this is this is like where we're going to work on this, and then when we get over here, we're just going to hit. Like, we're not going to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Right. About yeah, no, I like that. That's that's one way of definitely testing transfer from those more constrained drills to more cage setting or task um, task setting. But yeah, like for for Evan, like that's why I was asking you, Rachel, earlier about like feedback and and error correction, especially in more of a um, game like task um because like what we did today is this guy again like the the swing flaw would have been him like losing connection with the ground with his back heel um in his forward move so like my thought was like just put something really thin it was like it was really thin it was actually the bottom of a backspin tee put that like um on like half of his foot either the heel or the toe and then just kind of he'll just kind of fill that out and at no point when he's making his forward move does he want to lose connection with that 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 uh, that T um, that that thin part of the T on his back foot. And so, like, I didn't really need to like explicitly tell him, "Hey, like, make sure you're connected to the ground uh, up until your front foot contact." Um, so that was like my way of providing like information and feedback for him um, in each result. So like right, you just changed feedback. his proprioception of, of what you're trying to get him to do. You gave him something to feel. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, you can have him hit with his shoes off too. Yeah, that is good. Yeah, I'm sure well, that, I mean, I have, I have shoes off. 
And you know what? Have you tested Have you tested his ankle mobility? Yeah, we have. He's it, a catcher it, too. He's he's good. Yeah, he has he's good. Yeah. Ability. yeah. He might be. So I've been talking to, and this is something that I don't know if you guys have been down this rabbit hole too, but um, the guy who's who's building, I'm moving into his name's Jordan Smolard. Super smart, really good throwing coach, exceptional throwing coach, um, strength and conditioning guy, teaches throwers. Um, I know Doolin from Vanderbilt, who was a freshman this year. That's one of his guys. Like he does a really good job with throwers. Um, he was telling me, he's like, you know, we talk about mobility, right? Like, so, okay. Have you checked his ankle, you know, range of motion at dorsiflexion? Is it adequate? Okay. It is. You say it is, but he goes, but what there's a, there's a branch of, of functional movements, like functional, uh, assessments and stuff that talk about your strength at the end range of motion. And to me, that's key. So like that he might have really, really good, you know, mobility there, but his strength at the end of his mobility might be terrible. And I think that's really, really like, I, I haven't really dove down it a ton, but we've had a couple conversations about it. And it's really interesting if you think about it, right? Like if you, if you look at your torso and how much you turn, right? How strong are you at the end of your turn is going to really play with your posture, wouldn't you think? Right? Or how strong are you at the end of your, of your pelvis turn? Because that's going to play with your posture too. So I think like maybe that might be just something where like he can't physically hold his load either. It might be a hip issue. Maybe he can't hold his load in his hip for a long time. Maybe he's got poor mobility there or poor stability there when he's loaded. And then he might just come out of it early. And that might be why he gets a little bit jumpy. But I think that's an interesting thing that we can all probably look at. And I need to look at more is like, how strong are you? You know, it's like, it's like when you're, when you're uh, training for um, in the weight room, like for cleans and deadlifts and things like that, like, you know, like you, you have your pauses at the end range of motion, right? When you're max load, it's like you pause right before you hit the ground on a deadlift and then go back up like that to me, builds strength at that end, end range of motion. Same thing with a clean, like catching a clean and bottoming out, pausing at the bottom and then learning how to go up there. You build strength at the bottom of your range of motion. And I think that's really kind of an interesting concept that might be at play here. You just mm-hmm. not strong enough at that loaded position, whatever it might, and it might be his ankle, it might be his foot, or it might be his hip. There's a variety of things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's good. So, I like that. I'm making a note of that right now. Yeah, I gotta I gotta deep dive more into it. So if you find anything out, Nick, you gotta, yeah, you gotta let me know. For sure. All right. Well, we're going on about an hour and a half, so let's we can we can do a part two on this too for sure. We could okay. go like all night, but we could go all night. Like, At least I could. Yeah, yeah for like sure. An hour and a half because people are gonna watch them back. So maybe Rachel Folden part two. Nick, is there one final thing you want to ask Rachel besides? What's uh, yeah, just, uh, again, we'll probably have a part two here, but what, what are some of the information sources that you really look into, um, as a coach, like in terms of professional development, maybe, maybe someone that you chat with, um, about, you know, about professional development, uh, or also what books or other sources of information you use? Um, I mean, as far as like, like, I'm reading Peak right now. That one seems like it's pretty good. Anders Ericsson. Um, yeah, I think is that who wrote it? Yeah, it's like, I mean, yeah. I, I just think like the the more I get, the deeper I get into this business, the more I find myself talking to like physical therapists, um, strength and conditioning coaches. I, I ask a lot more questions to those people um, more so than I do the general hitting guru. 
And mm-hmm. so like, cause I think, I think any specialist in our sport, like we were hitting people, like any specialist as a hitter, like I got to understand the ins and outs of what it takes to make a human move in a hitting manner. Right. So I've got to have at least like some general knowledge of strength and conditioning or some general knowledge of, you know, uh, anatomy and physiology. So I find myself asking questions to a lot more strength and conditioning coaches and a lot more physical therapists lately. So you can create those. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, you, it'll, it'll start your brain. Like, you know, you find out, Oh, this is how we rehab a hip injury. And you're like, Hmm, like that gets me thinking like, well, this is kind of one way I could maybe activate this part of my body right before I go up to hit. Mm-hmm. Right. Or right before I go into a training session or, you know, something similar like that. I, I think that's where my brain has been lately is just, you know, I, I'll reach out to strength and conditioning coaches across major league baseball. I've made friends with, with a few of them now. And, you know, just like, Hey, what do you think about this? And, you know, is this a good isolation exercise that maybe you could do in the dugout right before you go up to bat? Or is this something that would be a good part of your everyday routine or something like that? Those are the people I find myself reaching out to a lot more lately. Mm-hmm. That's really good information. Yeah. Cause I've, I, especially how pro ball is now, uh, from, from my, you know, I guess being outside of pro ball kind of looking in, um, was that the amount of integration among support staff, like being able to have those conversations, like you said, that it maybe not specialized information, in in some of those fields, but having general knowledge where you can have conversations. Yep. I, I mean, have like, a question, and I've been dying to ask you. I don't know why I haven't asked you yet. Like to this point, how is your mom handling the transition from being a diehard Dodger? She was a Dodgers fan, right? I don't. Dad's a diehard Dodger fan. Mom, moms just go with the flow, dude. But yeah, she is. A Dodger. Yeah, I thought your mom was a Dodgers fan. I was really concerned yeah. about how she was handling the transition from the Dodgers to the Cubs. Mom's, mom's like in it to win it on, on Team She's Rachel, so it doesn't really matter. You, She's so. rooting for me. Dad is dad roots for his daughter like hardcore. But I, yeah. if you told dad, I, I got I I was joking with him because he came to visit me after I had gotten the job, and he wore a Dodger hat. And I'm like, what the hell are you wearing a Dodger hat for? I work for the Cubs. And he goes, well, you didn't buy me a Cubs hat. Yeah. <laughs> that was his answer. All you right. had a little harder time with, with the Dodgers and the, and the Yeah, Cubs. I mean, they're not – I mean, like, they're going to root for me regardless. But, like, you know, until – until you know, and I don't even want to say until because I don't know if it will ever happen. But unless I'm in a Cubs uniform on a dugout in Wrigley Field, I don't really think that they're going to root for anybody but the Dodgers. <laughs> They'll root for me, I'm but they're going to be about that. my whole family. I'm wondering about that. Like, I wonder how Rachel's mom is 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 holding up with the Dodgers. No, nah, they're cool. I mean, like, but, but I had, but I was under. I thought your mom was a big Dodgers fan. Well, so. she. So my grandma and grandpa live a mile from Dodger Stadium. So, like, you can walk to Dodger Stadium from their house. Um, but like, so my whole family's Dodger fan. The whole yeah. thing. Sure. So, yeah. It's okay that you were maybe once a really big Dodgers fan, we can, yeah. we can say that. Oh yeah. 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 Um, and my mom told, did tell me that I'm not anything big time yet until I make dancing with the stars like David Ross. She did tell me that. Sweet. Sweet. Yep. You did have encouragement so, from your mom kicking you. Finger, fingers crossed. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> You're not anything yet. <laughs> you ain't anything until you get 
Her first question was, do you know the guy from Dancing with the Stars? She didn't know his name. She just knew, <laughs> do you know the guy from Dancing with the Stars? And then she's like, uh, well, I want you to know that you're not anything until you make Dancing with the Stars. And That's I- awesome. So we started with Marvel movies and we end with Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> I wouldn't have okay. this any other way. Quality Zoom call. Yeah. All right. Oh, we'll do Thanks, we'll guys. do part two. We'll do part okay. two. Nick. Let's do yeah. it. Yeah, for we'll sure. do it. Maybe. I mean, you don't have anything real pressing. Maybe spring training coming up, re-kicking back in. So keeping our fingers crossed anyway. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. Nick, I'll see thanks, you tomorrow. Guys. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Good All seeing right. you. Nick. Right. See All you right. tomorrow. Bye. See you guys.